Well, I made a decision shortly ago that rather than try to keep you awake, which is really an onerous job, this will be a quiet and smooth, easy sermon. I don't want to disturb you. Let you rest in peace. Although that sort of goes against what we were hearing this morning, that we have to cry aloud and spare not and lift our voice like a trumpet. I think that was more scriptural than this attitude that I just expressed to you. We'll see. Take your chances. Go on to sleep. I love to yell at someone and wake them up. Maybe today we'll use names. You know, sometimes you can't overcome something if it's just a generality. Sometimes we truly need specifics. All right, enough of that. Oh, one thing, two or three people have said, where's the offering box? They couldn't seem to find it. It's hidden over here behind the computer. So uh, you have to work at giving an offering to God. You have to go find it. Thank you. The last Sabbath, I continued in a series about healing and about faith, or health and healing, I guess was the name of it, but we got into the aspect of faith. Your faith has made you whole, and saw some scriptures on that. And I want to follow up along those lines today, make this a continuation, really, of that series, Uh, It has more to do specifically with today. Uh, We have already heard, uh, just in the sermonette just now, about the last trump rising and meeting Christ in the air. Uh, We could go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, and some of those which we're quite familiar with, where the trumpet will sound and will rise to meet Christ in the air and ever be with him. I'm not going to turn to those. But there's something you need in order for that to happen. Now, if someone doesn't believe me, why don't you get over here on the side of the hall and see if you can rise. Jump for all your worth. Let's see. Can't do it, can you? We have to have empowerment. We have to have something beyond what we currently have in order to do so. In other words... We fall far short of what is required to rise into the clouds. Uh, We have done some things along those lines with airplanes, helicopters, spaceships, and so on, where we can get off the ground at least, but we are not empowered to go on our own. We can't go into outer space, but that's exactly where we'll go when we rise to meet Christ in the air. So there has to be some empowerment somehow. And the same thing is true in our lives. I can stand here and tell you, as I have many times, why God is scattering the church, what is wrong, what God is upset about, and we can all feel bad. Feeling bad, however, is not enough. Somewhere along the line we have to be empowered to do something differently. And we have all struggled for many years, if we were growing at all, to swim upstream. We've tried and tried, and we've overcome some. 
But it seems often to me, and I think to all of us really, that it is very, very difficult to grow, to change, to overcome, to be what we would like to be, that is, to be like God. And we can't fully be like God until we have that final empowerment when we're changed into God. That's what we're here to discuss, to think about. That's what our lives are all about. If there is no life after this life, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry and do whatever we wish to do. Whatever seems fun. Whatever seems right. Now, isn't that the way the world is living? Basically, whatever turns me on at the moment. Whatever would make me feel better right now is what they judge their conduct by. Now, we have a standard here, God's Word, that we are to follow. And do you realize, I think you do, that this goes against the grain of our nature? It is not in us to want to do what this book says for the most part. We have feelings, desires, pulls to go different directions. We get ourselves in a pickle, and to save face, to save pride, to save ego, to make ourselves look better in our own eyes and the eyes of those whom we'd like to look better in, we will lie. We will say, I didn't say that. I didn't do that. I wasn't there. Whatever we need to do to cover up for ourselves so that we can feel better about ourselves, we will do. That, that is, as human beings, motivated by our human nature. We taught our kids not to lie. We taught them to say, well, yes, I did do it but they tried to sort of slip around it by saying it was an accident. They thought that would remove the penalty. Well, it was just an accident. Can we excuse ourselves that way? Well, God, see, I didn't really mean it that way. It was just an accident. You think that'll float? You don't think so. We have to be empowered somehow in order to overcome, to grow, to change, to be what we know we ought to be. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, I will turn over there for a moment, not to verses 50 and 51 and 52, which we normally quote, but I do want to pick up something here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse, uh, oh, let's say 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. We are being pulled toward the grave. From the time we're born, uh, we're headed for the grave. It is an enemy that has to be conquered. We all die, but all in Christ will be made alive. Uh, for he has put all things under his feet, verse 27, but when he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. The Father will always be above the Son. And when all things shall be subdued to him, then shall the Son also himself be subject to him that put all things under him, that the Father may be all in all. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? Now this is a little bit of an obscure scripture. 
What do you mean be baptized for the dead? Uh, the Mormons mistrans misunderstand this, so they have somebody baptized over and over and over again for all the dead people that didn't get baptized. Now, the dead people can't follow Acts 2.38 and repent and be baptized, but these people think that they can go ahead and be baptized for them. Of course, they think that those people are still alive as lost souls out there floating around so that they can be baptized for them. So that's why they have all these millions and millions of dollars and hours going into studying genealogy to find out every human being that ever lived that they might be acquainted with or know so they can be baptized for them. Just a misunderstanding of this verse. What is the context here? The context, 1 Corinthians 15, is called the resurrection chapter. What is the hope of the dead? If I were dead today, what if I fell over right here on the floor, blam, didn't breathe another breath? What would be my hope? The resurrection only. Nothing you could do for me here. Had to be the resurrection. That's what we all have to look forward to. That is appointed to all people once to die. So if you're living on this earth, you are going to die, unless you're changed in the moment, the twinkling of an eye, when Christ returns. If you haven't been empowered on that day and rise to meet him in the air, you're going to die anyhow. It's only going to be a very, very few that escape physical death. And in one sense, even in the resurrection, maybe there's a death there of the old flesh, of the old self, because you become a spirit being, and the, the, the human, the flesh, sloughs off in some form. I don't understand exactly how, but you'll be spirit, and you won't be flesh anymore. So we have a hope, don't we? And this day pictures a resurrection, as I understand it, at the last trump, when we would rise to meet Christ in the air. Now, that's the only reason I'm religious, is that I look forward to rising to meet him in the air, whether I be dead when he comes or whether I still am alive. That is the reason I'm here today. That is the reason you're here today. You'd be somewhere else otherwise if you didn't understand this. We also know that many, many people whom God has called are not going to be chosen. There are some who are going to be empowered to be what they ought to be. Are we going to be among those? Now, I want to go to Galatians 5. Because there is a connection, there is a chain that cannot be broken that is very important for us, for us to understand. Now, you remember 1 Corinthians 13, and I've probably read it many times, where it says there's faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest is love, right? We're all very familiar with that passage, so I won't turn back and read it. But I doubt if we have equated that to Galatians 5, which mentions the same three characteristics, but defines it a little, and makes it uh, a circle that simply cannot be broken. There's a chain here. Let's pick it up in Galatians 5, verse 5, or I mean verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. 
until we are converted, until we repent, we have the bondage of human nature that we live with. Now, people out in the United States today do not feel that they are under bondage. They, are, they feel that they are free to do much of anything that they wish to do. But is that freedom? They make those choices we heard about in the sermonette, those choices to go the way of the flesh, the way of the world, and what does that do? It brings you into the chains of bondage. You are a slave to what you become when you follow the flesh. You can ruin your health with too much partying, with drugs, with alcohol, with cigarettes. You can ruin your flesh with the misuse of automobiles. You can ruin your flesh a lot of ways. You can be morally loose, and you can ruin your emotions and true feelings. You can go through mate after mate after mate. You can have illegitimate children. You can go through sexually transmitted diseases. Yeah, you're free to do anything you wanted to do, but what does this do to you? You become an emotional wreck. You have nothing but psychologists to tell you how you should manage and rear your children and manage your own life, for that matter. Worldly psychologists who do not have any of the answers. And as a result, you wind up an emotional wreck. A lot of people in our society today are just that. They are on all kinds of antidepressant drugs. You look in anybody's medicine cabinet out in this world today, and when you open the thing, it almost falls in on you like the commercial showed of somebody sneaking a peek into someone's medicine cabinet sometime back. Because they are on so many drugs, so many helps to get them over the emotional mess they have made of themselves. And now it's not just the adults, but the children are on all kinds of antidepressant drugs, uh, things to make them not act out and act up. Now, the government apparently is going to begin testing all our children to see if they exhibit any signs of emotional or mental disorder and if they do, according to their definition of what emotional and mental disorder is, they will start putting them automatically on drugs to straighten out their behavior. And I read a report yesterday which says that as soon as they get done testing the children, then they're going to begin testing the adults to see if they exhibit any mental unbalances or emotional problems or difficulties so that they too should be put on drugs. We're in a society that has got its minds, emotions, and feelings so messed up that they virtually cannot get along without some form of drug or another. Now, whether it be a pill or a bottle or whatever form they might choose to escape from themselves doesn't really matter. It's the escape that they are after. Now, when we are converted, as Paul says, 
we should have liberty. You see, God defines what human behavior should be. He defines what is the best way to live to wind up with mental and emotional stability, correct management of your life, so that you are in control and so that you are not afraid of yourself. We are in a society today that has to escape, or people have to escape from themselves. Most people cannot stand quiet. They have to have some kind of noise in order to live with themselves. We have been trained in escapism. Now, God says we should be able to meditate, to think. We should be able to live with ourselves. Our minds should be under control, and we should be managing ourselves in such a way that we can stand ourselves. But most people today simply cannot stand themselves. So they have to have some kind of entertainment going, some kind of stimuli, some kind of artificial something, so that they don't have to face the reality of what they are. Let's go on down here. Uh, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, he's talking about the whole system of the Old Testament, which included circumcision, physical circumcision. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Now, there were a lot of things in the Old Testament law that you had to do, such as all the animal sacrifices, blood sacrifices, sin sacrifices, trans, trespass sacrifices, and so on, which we covered recently. You had to go through all those things when you made mistakes or when you sinned. Or because you are sinful by nature, you had to have a sin offering. You had to be physically circumcised. All kinds of things you had to do. Now, Paul is saying you don't need to do all those things in that physical law. Christ is become of no effect to you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, that is, instead of by the blood of Christ, you are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Now, here hope and faith are linked together, and this is important for us to understand. What is the hope of righteousness? The resurrection, eternal life. Living in the kingdom of God, where, as Revelation 21 says, we will have no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, for the former things are passed away. Can you imagine a life with no pain, with no frustration, with no emotional upset that led to tears? I can't imagine that. I suffer pain every day of my life. 
either physical pain of some kind because of old injuries or new injuries or age or whatever might be the, the case, and I suffer emotional pain every day by virtue of living with me, by virtue of things I've done in the past which have damaged my emotions and feelings, by things I see around me or frustrating things that others might also be doing. We suffer pain and frustration every day. We wouldn't know how to live without it. We suffer pain from dealing with our parents. We suffer pain from dealing with our children. We suffer pain because of co-workers. We suffer pain because of ourselves. Why? What creates that pain? Living a human life, reacting selfishly. Selfishness causes pain. Why do your co-workers frustrate you? Because they're selfish. Because they're not willing to give and serve and help. All right? Through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. In other words, the hope we have of the resurrection is undergirded by faith. You cannot have a hope and a resurrection that is a meaningful hope and a resurrection. There are a lot of people who don't understand God's truth that would like to be God someday or would like to be an angel or whatever it is that they have in mind. But they don't understand what that takes and how it could ever be accomplished. But we do. But the hope of the resurrection cannot be had without living by faith. Now, this has to do with healing physically, and it also has to do with healing mentally and emotionally, spiritually. We have to live by faith. Now, what does that mean? We'll talk about that. I said I'd get to it last sermon, and I didn't make it to it, but we'll get there today, I hope. We wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. Can you have faith without love? I think Paul is telling us here you can't. Why? Why can't you? Why can't you have faith in God without love? That is dependent upon the definition of faith and what real faith is. You can have hope against hope. You know, you can have that with a lottery ticket. You can buy that lottery ticket and have a certain amount, about a dollar's worth of hope. I don't know what lottery tickets cost, but let's say they cost a dollar. You can have a dollar's worth of hope, and a dollar isn't worth much anymore, is it? And you read the statistics about how many people are buying those tickets and how many chances in a billion you have of winning the lottery, and it's sort of a hope against hope, isn't it? It's not a very lively hope. 
because you don't figure really the chances are very good that you're going to win, and more than likely you're not, and that's why they have lotteries, so they can keep most of that money. And they do. Without faith, or without love, you can't have faith. And faith will produce love. Why? The key is this. You and I have to become convinced that God's way of life is best. That's what it amounts to. And it is hard to convince a human being that God's way of living, his rules, are best for you. Because when you get in this circumstance, that circumstance, or another circumstance, you're going to think, I'd rather do this. I'd rather do that. I don't want to do what God says. I want to do what I want to do. Your human nature will tell you that. It is hard to convince your mind and your emotions that doing things God's way is always best. I bet you can sit there and think right now of things that you have done in your life where you convinced yourself that what you wanted to do was better at that moment for you than what God would have had you do. I could probably start talking right now and talk until midnight tonight, giving you examples of situations I've been in where I felt that way. Sometimes I gave in, sometimes I didn't over the years. When you're arguing with yourself, as one comic put it, you're about to mess up. You know what God says, and you know what you want to do, so what happens? You start arguing, don't you? And you start finding a way, a justification, somehow to do what I want to do, even though I know it's not what God's Word says. So the first part of empowerment to do what is right is convincing yourself or being convinced somehow that God's way is always right. It is always best to tell the truth. It is always best not to steal. It is always best not to commit adultery or fornication. It is always best to eat good foods instead of bad foods. It is always best to do that which is good for your body and mind as defined by God because he created us and he knows what makes a human being operate best. And he's written it down right here for us. How many people in the world today read this book continually to try to find out what is the best way to think, the best way to act? Very few. I submit that very few in the church even do that. They may read a little for inspiration. They may read a little to prove doctrines. They may read a little because the preacher says you need to study your Bible every day. So they do it for that. But how many are so convinced that everything God says is right that they dig through this Bible regularly trying to find out what would please God and what would be best for them. I've got to please God at some point or he's not going to be pleased to give me resurrection. He's not going to be 
pleased to empower me to fly without wings or to empower me to be a king and a priest in the world tomorrow. I need to please him. And if I please him, he knows the best way to live. I'm convinced of that, at least mentally, even though my emotions take me other places. Let's see the book of James here a little bit. Now, James is a book about faith primarily. And he starts out by saying, My brethren, verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations, trials, difficulties, when your human nature would lead you to do this because you think it would feel better, look better, be better, make you happy inside. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Now, one of the things people have a lot of trouble with is patience. Whether it be out in the world or in the church, doesn't matter. A patient person is hard to find, right? People talk about, boy, I have this temper. I'm always flying off the handle. I scream at the kids. I scream at my husband. I scream at my wife. I scream at everybody, the boss, because he'd fire me. There's an old song years ago about Oni, the boss. Now, when the day he retired and got his watch, he was going to just whip, on, whip up on Oni real bad that day. Well, you heard the sites probably 30, 40 years ago. But that song came out. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. That was a Johnny Cash song, I think. We don't have patience by nature. You have to work at patience. Now, when your faith is tried, you have to wait on God, don't you? Now, aren't we waiting on God right now? Don't we think the end is near, but it seems almost unbearable sometimes to wait and wait and wait until it comes? In the meantime, we have all kinds of troubles and trials and difficulties. Isn't that pretty much what our lives are all about? Yeah, they are. It's no different than what he's saying here. Now, if we are patient, and if we walk by faith, and God changes us, empowers us at the resurrection, there will come that time when we have a perfect marriage to a perfect bridegroom, and we will never cry or feel sorrow or pain ever again. Is that worth waiting for? But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, for example, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. Some people just don't have wisdom in how they manage their lives. If you lack wisdom, go to God and ask, but in faith, in belief, that it will happen. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the eternal. Now isn't that what Christ told people? Your faith has made you whole. You really believed it. You believed if you would touch the hem of that garment, you would be healed, and you were. 
If we really believe that God's way is the best way of life, and we live it, we will be blessed. It's this argument that goes on inside us that is the problem. And that's what James is addressing here. He says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, what is a double-minded man? A double-minded man is one who has two bosses, basically, God and the world. And the struggle is in obeying God and not obeying the impulses of this world. That's why God says, come out of Babylon. Don't be touched by Babylon. Get away from it. And I think that we have come to the time that he means both spiritually and physically. Get away from it. Because it makes you double-minded. And even we who have physically moved as far, basically, from Babylon as you can get are having trouble leaving Babylon where it was. We want to bring it with us. It is something we have been steeped in. It's something we've lived in all our lives. It's something we've learned to be a part of. Just like the Jews who knew who God was when they went into the captivity into Babylon, they lived there for 70 years, and they have become such part and parcel with Babylon, they could not bring themselves to leave and go back to Jerusalem, except for a small minority of them. Their lives were entwined in it. Their diets, their jobs, everything they did, their religion, the Talmud is a Babylonish book with a syncretism of paganism and some of God's work. Couldn't get away from it. Couldn't leave it. Now, we're having trouble leaving it behind. We bring it with us. We're told to leave it, so we physically get up and depart, but then we bring it with us in so many ways. We still go in there and buy its things rather than turning to the things we should eat that are as natural as we can possibly get them. We think we're giving ourselves a treat when we go to town and partake of those things which we are learning we should not have. We want to treat our human tastes and desires which have been perverted with the things of the society around us. Tough job, isn't it? Hard to do, isn't it? Hard to break those habits. <clears throat> we grew up on apple pie and ice cream and Chevrolet, didn't we? Hard to get rid of it, or that is, to make it with the right ingredients. Very difficult. But we can't be double-minded, because then we're unstable. We're not really going God's way, and we're not really going the world's way, so we're a confused mess of emotions right in the middle somewhere. Now, what does that gain you? Is that fun? Let's go over here and understand something about faith. We say the just shall live by faith. James 2, 
verse 17. Well, let's go to verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith, that is implying faith alone, save him without works? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, let's say we have somebody living in our little development, for instance, and they have become so poor that they don't have electricity, they don't have food, and they don't have any clothes to wear. That poor. Now, some of us might think we're poor, but we're not that poor yet. What if someone like that was in our, in our own community? And, if one of, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be you warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? What good did it tell them, be warmed and filled, if you don't give them some clothes and some food? Doesn't do them a bit of good. Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. A, let's say, a belief in God that you can become God someday is an empty, worthless belief if you don't do something to ensure that it will occur. There are people who will sit at home day after day after day hoping for a good job that will pay lots of money and will not require them to work very hard. I don't see big corporations beating their doors down trying to find them and put them to work. It just doesn't work that way. Faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yes, a man may say, you have faith, oh, you have such faith in, work, in God, but I have works, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, well, you do well. Even the devils believe that and tremble. That's a big deal. Oh, I believe there's only one God. Well, what good does that do you? The devils believe that. doesn't do them any good. But will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? <clears throat> it doesn't do any good to believe you're going to be in the kingdom of God if you don't do anything about it. Something is required. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? If he said, I'll do anything you say, God, then God says, why don't you take Isaac out there and slit his throat? And he said, well, wait a minute now. Let's, let's renegotiate here. Not what he said. He was willing to do it. See you how faith worked with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. I saw a scripture this morning uh, in Isaiah. I don't know exactly where Nelson was, but uh, my eye fell on it. It said, let righteousness run as rivers, not trickle. <laughs> I got this feeling about my own righteousness and how sometimes it sort of, sort of trickles. But it doesn't run like a river. I'd like to see righteousness 
flow through me like a river. Unimpeded. That's the way God ultimately wants us to be. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. But he didn't just believe. He believed enough that he did something about it. Whatever God said, he would do. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? Now here was a woman who was living an ungodly life. And yet she recognized in some form or fashion, that these men who had come to her place were of God, were of Israel, and she was afraid of Israel, and therefore afraid of Israel's God. Now the human thing to do, normally speaking, had those men come into her house, would have been sent someone out to tell the people in the city that these guys are here, come get them. Because if it were found out that she were harboring these, what they would have called fugitives, <clears throat> in her house, they would have summarily killed her in those days. So it would have been a much safer deal had she ratted on them. But she recognized that these were important people because of God. And she chose to risk her life, in that sense, to save them. She... And it worked out good for her. When she had received the messengers, she sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Your body without the breath of life, the spirit in man and, and breath, isn't worth much. Quit breathing, if you would, for about five minutes here. And we'll check you later and see how much your life is worth. It won't be worth much. You'll be dead. And faith without works is dead also. Now, how do we tie this all together? Faith is absolute belief, absolute trust that there is a God of creation who made the entire universe, all those stars and planets out there, and he made this one earth that we're living on and made human beings on it out of nothing. He didn't take a pile of lumber from somewhere and start building an earth. He made it out of nothing because he could. And I believe that. Now, he who designed human beings and made all their mind parts and their body parts put them together out of dirt and breathed life into them, the one that can do that knows everything about the human body. He knows absolutely everything about the human mind. But we are only partly convinced of that. Because... When we feel our mind or our body might be threatened by disease, by accident, by whatever might threaten it, we often go to people who know very little, truly, about the human mind and body and have them give us drugs 
made by people who know very little about the human body and chemical compounds. Drugs which turn out to make babies with flippers sometimes, thalidomide babies. Drugs we find out cause heart attacks. Drugs we find out cause the mind to be destroyed. Refined foods, so-called, that are full of chemicals and poisons and sugars that have been refined to the point that the body cannot assimilate them and become poison to it. Slow poisons in some cases, fast poisons in other cases. So we go to people who know nothing much to try to save us, rather than God who knows absolutely everything about us. Now, ancient Israel made a covenant with God, and that covenant was of life and of death, of health and of wealth, and said, we will obey you, we will follow you, we will do everything you say. And he said, if you do, I will give you health and wealth and life. And of course, they didn't, and look at us today. Now, when you and I were baptized, whether we were fully explained to us or not, we made a vow with God, that we would turn our life over to him. Now, you may have heard Herbert Armstrong years ago explain repentance, and he would say, I am nothing but a burned-out hunk of junk. Take me, do something with me, I'm turning my life over to you. I've not been able to do anything worthwhile with it, and I certainly can't resurrect myself when I die. You take my life. I give it to you freely. It is now yours. I kept it for myself. Now it's yours. I will subscribe to everything you say. I will live by every word of God. I will struggle and bring every thought into the captivity of God. I will live by every word of God. And whether I live or whether I die, I belong to you. Do with me as you please. You are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me. Make me. Help me yield. Help me be the right consistency to be molded the way you want me to be. That is the promise we made. And then, the minute we start to have troubles, we go to someone other than God for solutions. Will that make our Creator happy? Will it make our bridegroom happy? Jesus Christ, whom we said we would faithfully follow and obey, and the minute we have trouble, we don't go to our husband-to-be, but we go to this world and its knives and chemicals and its ways to get relief from whatever problem we have. Would that be pleasing to God? Is that walking by faith? Is your faith dead or is your faith alive? Will we trust God or will we not? He has the power of resurrection. How many MDs do you know with the power of resurrection? Have you ever met any? I have not. 
God can choose to let you die whenever he so chooses. You belong to him. Should it not be his choice, whether you are 5 or 20 or 30 or 70 or 90 when you die? He is the only one who can resurrect you, whether you were 5 or 20 or 30 or 60 or 90. The only one. Why is life so important to us, physical life, that we would seek to preserve this life and jeopardize eternal life? And yet we grapple with that, don't we? There are hard decisions we have to make because we wrestle with living as long as we can in this life. Yet God has cut short many lives in righteousness. Of the original apostles, the only one who lived out and died a natural death was John. All the others were truncated by crucifixion or whatever means they chose to kill them. And God allowed it. Stephen preached one of the most powerful sermons ever preached anywhere on this earth and died at the end of it with rocks bouncing off his head. Now Stephen could have gotten out of that by not shoving the truth in those people's noses. And he would have lived a longer life. But Stephen is going to be where when the last trump sounds. He is going to rise to meet Jesus Christ in the air and the bumps on his head will be forgotten. Besides that, it's only been a split second since he died in his consciousness until he will be rising. Now, it seems like a long time to me since Stephen gave that sermon. I don't remember. I read about it there in the book of Acts. That's 2,000 years ago. To me, that seems like a long time. But do you know how long it seems like to Stephen? No time whatsoever. No time has expired in his understanding since that rock knocked him out. Next split second, he'll be meeting Christ in the air. Now, would it have been better had he not preached that sermon? Would it not have been better had he read those attitudes among those people and said, I think I'll cool it today. You know, they're standing there with these rocks like this. And he starts preaching. All right, buddy. Don't push it. Don't push it. Don't say that. That was the attitude they had. Now, he could have made a decision to live longer and not preach that sermon. But that sermon is there as an example to you and me, and what they did to him is an example to you and me that we should not seek to save this life but to lose it in Christ. And if we die physically, so what? So what? We belong to him. Now, we can have dead faith, which will gain us nothing, or we can have faith 
with works. You see, that lady that touched Christ's hem had works. It wasn't a great big work, but she had to put forth effort to get close enough to him and then to reach out, scratch, and touch the hem of his garment. The man's sick of the palsy. They had to have works. They couldn't get to Christ who was inside, so they got on the roof and started tearing the mud and the sticks and everything loose so that they could finally lower the man down to him. Now their faith and belief that Christ can heal would have meant nothing if they hadn't had the works. If they hadn't actually dug through the roof and found Christ, sitting outside at the edge of the crowd wouldn't have made a bit of difference, would it? Because he wouldn't have ever been healed. They did something about it. <clears throat> now, once we are absolutely convinced God's way is the best way to live, what does that produce? It produces love. How? Why? Because God's way is outgoing concern, giving, and loving. Doing for others, loving them as much as you love yourself. Are we convinced, even yet, that that is the best way to live? Or do we tend to think of self first and to be selfish and to keep score and to make sure that we don't do anything for anyone else unless they do a commensurate amount for us? If we still think that way, we're not fully converted. We're not convinced that love is the best way. We're not convinced, convinced that faith by works is important. I mean, let's say we had somebody naked and hungry in our community. And we're not convinced that they could do something for us, therefore we won't feed and clothe them. Because they don't have anything, how could they do anything for us? Now, I don't guess any of us are so hard and so cold that if we saw somebody truly starving to death and naked, that we wouldn't throw some food in the door if we didn't have to look at them. And maybe some clothes, you know, put these on and then eat. We would do that, wouldn't we? So we're okay, we're righteous, everything's fine. Now, there are many, many other ways without going to that extreme that we are selfish and self-righteous and not willing to give without expecting something in return. But if we're going to have living faith, faith that will do some good, faith that will heal us, faith that will have us resurrected, then we've got to be convinced that we need to be doing works, that we need to be loving our brother as ourselves. Now, this same man goes on and explains that. I don't know exactly where it is, but he talks about love here, and Peter certainly gives in, goes into it very, very deeply. So the hope of righteousness is the resurrection. And we can have faith and belief in a resurrection, but that faith is a dead faith that doesn't mean anything unless we have works. And if we're convinced that God is God and that he can and will resurrect, then we're going to start living 
by these words, not by the dictates of our human nature in the world around us. But we've got to become convinced. Once we're convinced, what are we going to begin to have? We're going to begin to have the power to do. But it's awfully hard to do something when you're not convinced it will work. Isn't it? You've never planted a garden before. You don't know the first thing about gardening. And you figure if you try to garden, it will fail. Are you motivated to plant a garden? Not very much. Now, someone who's gardened all his life and says, I think I'll plant a garden this summer, and he's been through the drill, he knows what to do, he's done it many times, is convinced that if that person plants seed and does everything necessary, that the garden will succeed. So that person is far more motivated to plant a garden than the person who's never gardened. Now, once you're convinced that God knows everything there is to know about human beings and that his word contains everything we need to know to be happy, to be well-adjusted, to have good families, to have hope for the future, once we're convinced of that, we'll begin to follow it. See where the empowerment comes from? It's being convinced. There are a lot of things that people did that you and I can read about, and if I have time, we will read about today, that you don't think you could do. You really don't see how you could do it. Those people were empowered. They had the strength, the courage, and the power to do it. Where did that empowerment come from? It doesn't come from being double-minded. We have to seek God with our whole heart. Heart, mind, body, and soul. That is, with every fiber of our being, we have to seek God's way. We have to believe with every fiber of our being, that he knows the best way for human beings to act and to live. And once we are convinced we're not unstable and double-minded, we will be empowered to live this way. Aren't your greatest frustrations in struggling with yourself from not truly believing that God's way is the best way for you? Your human nature wants you to do this. And that's why we struggle and justify and self-justify and self-deceive to do what we would wish we could do. Even if we are convinced God's way is best, we try to unconvince ourselves so we can do this don't we? That's the struggle. That's what we fight with all the time. We've got to get convinced somehow. Now, when we're ill, are we convinced that God is our healer? Are we absolutely convinced that he knows more about health 
and what it takes to have health than man does? Or do we argue with ourselves and fight with ourselves and wish we could trust God, but we trust in the medical society instead? Most of the church are doing that today. Most are not being healed today. The percentage of healings will rise commensurate with the faith by works that we live, with how much we are convinced that God knows best. Christ said, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. I've heard people in the church interpret that to say, well, I better go to a doctor then. Now, wait a minute. Who is our physician? He has told us he is our healer. He forgives all our iniquities, heals all our diseases. Yes, we need a physician. But my physician is not the same physician as those people out there. I've got a different physician. I've got, I've got one that knows my body absolutely, completely. Counts the hairs of my head. Knows everything that's wrong with me. Knows everything I need. He knows every lack that is in this head, every need, every wrong emotion, every wrong feeling, every doubt, every discouragement, every self-pity. He knows everything in this head. There's nothing in there that he doesn't understand. Now, you can read the medical journals and the articles and all the things about how they're trying to explore the human mind. They're trying to put together all the DNA and figure out what makes a mind work or not work. And they have this theory, and ten years later they have a totally different theory. They can't even figure out how to make you thin or fat. Because they'll have the Atkins theory for a while, and before that they had a different theory. And before that they had a different theory. And before that they had a different theory. And everybody ran to it like rats to the cheese. And the only real answer to the problem is eat foods the closest to the way God created them as possible and exercise. It's that simple. But they test and probe and stick different bodies and try all these different things and they come up with either carbs or proteins or whatever the latest fad thing is. Or all these little pills that if you can eat, it'll take your diet, your you know, your appetite away. Or if all else fails and you weigh 500 pounds, they can go in there and they can start stapling your stomach all together. And you won't be able to eat as much, and therefore you'll lose weight. Or they take this vacuum cleaner in there and open your skin up and stick it in there and turn it on and let it the fat out. Man is so marvelous. Why aren't we convinced God knows? He made that mind. He knows everything in there. He knows exactly the way he put it together, and he knows how to fix it. We get anointed for illness in our stomach. Maybe sometimes we ought to get anointed for problems in our head. Is there any difference between heart or liver disease and mental disease? Brain's just an organ. 
there are things that are wrong in there. Maybe we ought to get anointed for being mental. Emotional, mental sickness. Of course, you know, you'll admit that you got a problem here, but you don't like to admit you got one here. And that's where most of our problems are, is in here. Most of our problems in the rest of our body started here. When will we be convinced and quit being double-minded? Now, he says the prayer of faith, the effectual, fervent prayer, will heal the sick. But if we are double-minded and unstable, and we can't quite decide whether we ought to go to God or we ought to go to the world, God says we won't get an answer from Him. Now, you want to know the truth? You want reality here today, brethren? Do you want the kind of faith that Daniel had when they threw him down in with the hungry lions? Do you want the kind of faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had when they grabbed them and threw them into the fire heated seven times hotter? Do you want the kind of faith Isaiah had when they stretched his arms and legs out and probably started at his crotch and started sawing him up to the Adam's apple. Do you want the kind of faith that Paul had when the serpent bit him and he shook it in the fire and went on about his business? Do you want the kind of faith so that no matter what anybody does to you, you will never waver or depart from the way of God. I would love to have that kind of faith, that kind of belief. Where does it come from? How were those people empowered to have that kind of faith? They were empowered by believing that everything God says is the best way and doing it. You cannot do it until you are convinced that it is right. Internally. You have to internalize the words of God. They have to become part of your thinking to the point you really believe it. And you're not arguing with yourself and fighting yourself, saying, I'd rather do this. This would feel good. This would be fun. Sure, it would feel good. Sure, it would be fun. Didn't Moses face that? And he decided he'd go out and dwell in the wilderness rather than enjoying the temporary pleasures of sin. Is sin fun? You bet it is. It can be a lot of fun. That is, until you realize how much it's messed up your head and your emotions, maybe years later. How it's messed up your marriage. How it's messed up your health. How it's fouled up your responses. Instead of being genuine and pure and simple, you're complicated. I had remember one Hollywood actress saying she slept with anybody she wanted to because she enjoyed that. That was fun. But she admitted some years down the line that she was an emotional mess. But she had fragments and bits and pieces of memories from all over the place 
and people she still liked and had slept with, and now they were gone, and part of her was here, and part of her was here, and part of her was somewhere else, and she wasn't all there. She was spread all over Hollywood, and she was an emotional mess. Now, she may have had fun initially, but now she's suffering. And now she's becoming convinced that that wasn't the way to live, but it's a little late. She will never have peace of mind again in this life. Just won't be there. And to what degree we imbibe and indulge in this world is the degree to which it's going to mess us up. Just the way that it is. Wouldn't it be nice to be convinced when you were young that God's way is the best way? Wouldn't that be nice? Even a child is known by his works, whether they be good or whether they be bad. That child, if he doesn't learn to manage his emotions and feelings and attitudes when he's young, will not be able to when he is old. And it's going to have a lot of difficulties in life. The sooner in our lives we can be convinced that God's way is the best, the better off we're going to be. You see, Abraham was an older man when Isaac was born. Very older. And then when Isaac grew up, at whatever age, whether it was late teenager, 20s, or whatever, it's been argued, doesn't matter, still a young man. When his father said, lay down on those rocks, son, probably tied him up, I don't know. Maybe Isaac had enough control, but he didn't tie him. Maybe Isaac was convinced enough that God is God, and his father had his best interests in mind. Maybe he had enough control at that age that he didn't need to be tied up. And when his father said, lay down on the rocks, and lifted the knife above his heart, or above his throat, whatever he was going to do, probably going to cut his throat like you would a sacrificial animal. All right, let's move the arm down, not up, but here. Tilts his chin back, and Isaac doesn't resist. That is living by faith. That is living by works. That is showing your faith by your works. Are you and I ready for that? We give in to our children just because they whine or cry or stomp or kick us. Would we give in if he said, Daddy, please don't kill me? That's the kind of faith I want. I pray now for healing. I would like to be where I could just say, be healed. I would like to walk by on the street and see somebody really hurting and in the handicap section and not able to get up and walk, maybe paraplegic, and say, go put your wheelchair in the car. Come on, let's go and shop together. I'm not there yet. We are not there yet. But we need to get there. 
we need to be there. We need to be convinced that the hope of the resurrection is real. That we can live forever as God and never whine or cry or feel pain ever again. And be so convinced that we walk in absolute trust of the one who created us and made this word. That we will live by every word that is breathed here. And we'll get excited about reading what it says rather than Bible study becoming drudgery. We'll be empowered to read it because we know that the one who made us knows all about us and that his instructions would be the best instructions. Why do we need all these other books and these doctors and all these financial advisors when there's financial advice here? There's health advice here. Why do we need those child psychologists when the one who made children has the answers in here? Why aren't we digging those answers out? Because we absolutely believe with all our heart that God who made us is God. And that He has the answer for everything. You want empowerment? Get yourself convinced that God is God and His way is best for you, whether you live or die, in sickness or in health. Didn't we vow that we would live with our mate in sickness or in health till death do us part? Yeah, we did. Can't we give at least that much to God? Our bridegroom-to-be that is going to be married to us forever more and we can't trust him to take care of us? We don't really believe that those strikes and all he went through before and on that stake were for our healing? Paul said you don't believe it. You don't divide it and discern it into two parts. And therefore, of you, many of you are sick and dead. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What is it going to take to get us to turn our lives over to God like we said we would do and present our bodies a living sacrifice? Not a dead one that can't accomplish anything, but I belong to you. Use me today in whatever way you wish. I'll help whoever I can help. I'll do whatever I can do, no matter whether I get anything back or not. Because hope in a resurrection is undergirded by faith and works, showing that you believe God is God and He has your best interests in mind, no matter when you die or how sick you are in the meantime. But He knows what's best for you. If we have troubles, trials, sicknesses, difficulties, tribulations, persecutions, and God allows us to go through those, He's doing it with our best interests in mind. He has said, through much tribulation enter the kingdom, many are the afflictions of the righteous. In Christ Jesus you will suffer persecution. He has said we will have all kinds of problems. 
But if we're convinced that he has our best interests in mind, we're not going anywhere else for a solution but to him. We're going to live by every word of God. That is what empowers us to do what Jesus Christ did. Did he not give his entire life, his entire self for us? The most tremendous example of faith by works. But that was Christ. What about Elijah? Elijah was a man subject to the same passions that we have. He is no different from you and me. Every wrong desire, every passion he had, that you and I had. And yet he prayed fervently and effectually, and it didn't rain for, what, three or three and a half years. He prayed again, and it rained. He believed in God. And he fought himself every day to live according to these words. Doesn't mean he didn't have the same desires, the same passions, the same feelings that you and I have. But he was empowered by his absolute belief and trust in God. When do we turn loose and trust him to save us? Belief, faith, is more than just hoping against hope that maybe God will have mercy and heal or help. It's absolute belief based on doing the little things daily faithfully. And as we do those things, our faith, our trust, grows and grows. Because as we trust him in little things and they work out, we trust him in bigger and bigger things. And they, too, will work out. How did these people in Hebrews 11 ever get to this point? How did a man like Noah come to the point that when God said, build a boat up here on the hill, far, far, far from the water, build it this big, this long, this wide, this deep, according to this plan that I'm going to give you, and you've got 120 years, buddy, get busy. Time's starting right now, and it's going to start raining in 120 years. <laughs> Some days I get so frustrated just trying to build a little community, a little temple, a little church, a little block of people. Sometimes it seems like so much work, so much to do, so little time to get it all done. Sometimes it's frustrating. I've got a list that long of things I need to do. That's about three pages worth, and that's about right. And some of them are big projects. Write a calendar booklet. Edit all the minor profit series. <laughs> Transcribe and edit the Passover series so that it can be sent to people. Those are all things I need to be doing. And then I see other things that need to be done. And since I've, it's a lot easier to drive nails than it is to write articles, it's easy to say, I'll come help you do that. 
but I'm making myself quit at noon and go in and hit the office. Let you pound nails by yourself. Too bad. But things have to be prioritized. It can seem like too much. I mean, that's just, that's just my thing. You've got yours. We've all got our lists. Or at least we ought to, otherwise we'll never get organized and get anything done. We all have our crosses to bear. That was like an incredible job to Noah, who was not a boat builder, <laughs> as far as I know. And God said, all right, go build a boat. Oh, man, I don't think about building boats. Learn, Noah. Abraham. Oh, he was told, leave your home. Go out and live in the tent. Go live in the desert. <laughs> well, okay. Start getting the tent put together. And then he's told you're going to have children. Too late for that. No, you're going to have children. Well, oh, okay. Sarah just laughed. <laughs> okay. I guess so. Okay. We'll go for it. And they did. And then God said, kill him. Okay. There's some belief in there, isn't there? Isn't there some point where they believed that God had their best interests in mind and they trusted him entirely? Maybe Abraham figured God, he'd already promised Abraham that his son would multiply all over the face of the earth. So Abraham probably said, well, okay, he wants me to kill him, I'll kill him. He'll probably resurrect him. He had that much trust in God. What if God came to you and said, I want you to take your eldest son, your eldest daughter, whatever, your youngest one, I'd like you to take them out there, stretch them out, cut their throat. Any volunteers? That's pretty tough, wasn't it? He believed God. He believed God had his best interests in mind. See how double-minded we tend to be? When are we going to be convinced that our baptism vows need to be followed? That we belong to God. We no longer belong to ourselves. We're His. We have no right to be selfish, to take care of self first. And most of our frustrations come because we do that, and we don't show love for others. We put ourselves first because we're not convinced God's way is best. We're still convinced it would be better for us to take care of ourselves first aren't we? Or we're somewhere in between, double-minded, and we'll receive nothing of God. Now, do we or do we not want God to truly begin to bless us? Do we truly want Him to heal us and to help us and to strengthen us and to heal us spiritually and to make us what we ought to be? Are we tired of riding the fence or not? What is it going to take to convince us that the way of this world and the way of Babylon is not the best way and that we can't have it both ways? No man can serve two masters. We will either serve God or we will serve man and money. 
One of the two. We cannot serve both. Christ said that in so many words. And the fact that we still try to ride the fence is the source of most of our pain and suffering. I'm giving you some very, very important information today. As important as it gets. Get off the fence. Put God first. Believe God. I was going to go through all of Hebrews 11. I don't have time. Paul was writing this and he ran out of time too, so he says he just summarized the end of the chapter. People who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to fight flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Sometimes God is going to allow his people to be killed on purpose. Are you going to have a problem with that if you face it? It all depends on whether you're convinced God has your best interest in mind, whether you trust him, you believe him, you have faith in him, or not. Every decision you make throughout your life, day by day, is based on whether you are convinced God has your best interest in mind and whether you absolutely trust him in everything. Willing to die if it comes to it. Some of us will be asked to die. All will not, but some will. They had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, slain with a sword, and the physical conditions they lived by in the inn were not that of kings either. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Do we feel we have it rough? We ain't seen nothing. Are we destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy? They wandered in deserts, and in mountains, and in dens, and lived in caves of the earth. Because they believed that God had their best interests in mind and they walked in faith no matter what the physical conditions. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The reality, the undergirding, is things that you hope for for the evidence of things not seen. No physical evidence, no physical circumstances that would indicate that God has your best interests in mind. When you're living in a cave with very few clothes, maybe a raw sheepskin, and very little to eat, it's hard to understand that God has your best interests in mind. And when they come and drag you out of the cave and rip you from one end to the other, it's hard to believe that God has your best interests in mind. And when you need a quadruple bypass or something cut out, they say... 
And you're told, go pray the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man and you will be healed. And there is no physical evidence of that. It's hard to believe God has your best interests in mind. When we are converted, when we are changed, when we do not live a double standard and are not unstable, and we fully believe with all our heart that God has our best interests in mind, then we will be healed, physically and spiritually. What is it going to take to convince us? Because when we are convinced, we will be empowered. Just like when we are changed, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, we will be empowered to fly. That's reality. 